Uh, it's good to be with you guys. We have been, uh, for a while now, focused on the fifth and final major theme in 1 Corinthians. We've been calling it carnal worship, where Paul exposes the Corinthians' carnal worship practices and exhorts them to engage in scriptural service, the scriptural deployment of their spiritual gifts and scriptural service. And uh, we just wrapped up chapter 12, which has a high emphasis and focus on spiritual gifts, as well as Christian service and a big focus on the body of Christ and Paul sort of constructing scripturally what the body of Christ is and what it looks like, how it functions and operates. Um, we learned that the Corinthians had developed a kind of morbid-like obsession with the spiritual gift of tongues because for whatever reason they thought it was kind of the highest of all the spiritual gifts and could have been because it's um, an open, dis openly displayed gift and would bring a lot of attention to those who, who possessed it and utilized it. And so I think that you know, they were obsessed with it because it would bring you a lot of attention if you had it and a lot of praise and a lot of accolades. And that's kind of what we've been looking at. They thought it was the most important spiritual gift of all. And so a lot of members in this church were chasing after it. And this led to all sorts of trouble, uh, the diminishment of their regular God-given spiritual gifts, the degradation of those who didn't possess it. They really degraded those who didn't have this gift or who weren't as interested in it as others. And that it also deteriorated all of the peace and unity in the church. And this can happen anytime uh, the people and members of a church kind of get focused on a tertiary, secondary issue, and that's their whole focus, and that's, that's what they care about, and that's the emphasis. And then it causes them to, to cause trouble with those who are actually focused on the mission of the church. And so all of this was playing out in this church at Corinth, at the end of chapter 12, Paul does what he usually does best. Uh, he's probably the best at sarcasm in the Bible. And uh, he did use some sarcasm at the end of 12. He basically says, I want you to earnestly desire the higher gifts. Um, of course, if the Corinthians were under the impression that tongues was the higher gifts or the highest gift, and he tells them you should be pursuing the higher gifts, what is he saying about tongues? The one that you're focused on is not a higher gift. So it, it's, to me, I see it as pure sarcasm. And it was kind of his way of knocking tongues off the idolatrous podium the ever prideful and, of course, pedantic know-it-all Corinthians had put it on. Um, and I don't want you to get me wrong. I, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to attack the spiritual gift of tongues. It was a God-given gift, uh, a meaningful gift, a profound gift, um, an effective gift when practiced properly. So, you know, when we, when we talk about these things, we're not trying to degrade one gift over the other or any of that. We're just trying to illustrate the problem with the Corinthians as a church. Um, we know that every gift that comes from God is, is a good gift, right? We, we know this to be true. Everything that the Father gives us down from heaven is just, it's just perfect. It's an awesome gift, James 1.17. Uh, but tongues, according to Scripture, was not among the higher gifts. Um, 
Paul makes that so clear in chapter 12, and he kind of illustrates it in 13 uh, quite a bit, and then in 14 really strongly. And why is tongues not among the higher gifts? We learned that because it had a very low impact on the church, um, and it had a very short lifespan. It was only given to last through the apostolic age, and after that to disappear. Um, it, I would say that tongues wasn't given for the regular weekly edification of the church, but and we learned these things before. It was given as a sign, as a judgment, as a reversal of judgment, and I think most importantly to remove language barriers between people as you're sharing and presenting the gospel. Um, so when properly employed within the churches, the removal of language barriers was probably tongues main contribution for the common good. As we learned, that's what the gifts were given for in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So there are higher gifts according to Paul. We learned that, and one would be prophecy, and he makes that very clear in chapter 14 of the same epistle in verse 1, verse 5, and verse 39. Um, it's a much higher gift because of its much higher impact on on churches. It makes a, a, a grand impact on churches as opposed to tongues did. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 to 4 illustrates that. Again, Paul's point is not to exalt one gift above the other, not to pit one of God's gifts against another, but to in you know to encourage the Corinthians to stop obsessing over a gift that has minimal impact. Um, and to maybe, if they're going to really go after gifts, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, then make sure you're going after the gifts that have a more positive and bigger impact on the church because the goal should be for the common good of the church, to build up the church. You see, most people back in the first century wanted tongues because it was good for them. And that's exactly what we see today. If I could just get that, then the spotlight goes on me and I look really cool because I have it. So that was their, their whole attitude, obsessing over a gift that made minimal impact. And Paul is, is correcting them for that. And what he's also trying to illustrate, and he'll really do it in chapter 13, he's trying to illustrate and correct them on their lovelessness, even their selfish love. Because if any of us or the Corinthians or any Christian throughout history has some kind of singular focus on a gift, and, and, and that's the gift that you want because you want it for you, well, that indicates self-love. If you wanted a spiritual gift, the attitude, proper attitude behind it should be, I want, I want a particular spiritual gift, Lord, and you pray for that. Why? So I can make an impact on the body of Christ so, so that you can work through me through the gifting to help my brothers and sisters. It's all about service. It's not about self-service. It's about serving others. And so they were inverted. They, you know, they wanted the stuff for them. And so Paul is, is he's been correcting that and challenging that and rebuking that. And he gives them both barrels in chapter 13, which is where we're headed. I mean, we, we all talk about chapter 13, 1 Corinthians. It's, it's the love chapter. It's the love passage. You know, you've heard it read at weddings. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's very popular for those things. And um, no context is ever given for it. Never. 
And, and the reason why he breaks out in chapter 13 and talks about love in such great detail is because of the lovelessness of the Corinthians. So next time you're at a wedding and somebody says, we're going to turn over to 1 Corinthians 13, just yell out the Corinthians didn't love anybody. <laughs> Actually, do it when they says, does anyone here object? <laughs> yes, you're not teaching the passage in context. I dare you to do that. I'll give you a hundred bucks. <laughs> Keith will give you two hundred. So, bottom line, what Paul is teaching here and in 13 and beyond is the motive behind desiring any spiritual gift ought to be love for Christ and love for his church. Not because believers want to show off, not because they want to make a name for themselves, not because in our context they want to become rock stars or any of that nonsense. We, if we love Christ and we love Christ's church, because really everyone talks about how they love Christ, but they don't have any love for their brothers and sisters. They don't have any love at the church and they don't display the love through sacrificial service or giving and all that. I, I find it hard to believe that anyone who professes to love Christ and doesn't love his bride, you really don't love Christ. So if we love Christ and we love his church, we should eagerly desire spiritual gifts why? Because spiritual gifts are nothing more than tools of love. We should eagerly desire to serve one another. And, and the spiritual gifts help us to serve and love one another. What is service? It is an expression of love. And bottom line, love was not at the center of the Corinthian church. It just wasn't. You know, who the best preacher was at the center. Remember that in chapter one? I follow this guy, I follow that. That was there. It's all self-love, you know? Well, we're part of the celibate team. Well, we're part of the married and sexual team. It's all about self. It's self-love and pride. That's this church. That's, that's the Corinthian church. MacArthur said, it is tragic that in many churches... As in the one in ancient Corinth, the love, uh, the love that is basic to Christian character does not criticize or does not characterize the membership of the ministry. So he's, he's basically saying in that particular church and a great many churches today, love is not central to the ministries, to what they're doing. He said, he says this love was missing in Corinth. Oh, sure, there were spiritual gifts present. There was even right doctrine for the most part was present because they had some pretty decent doctrine. Their theology of service in the body of Christ was horrific. But for the most part, they got something. Oh, yeah, God's sovereign in salvation. They got some things right, MacArthur is saying. But he says at the end of the day, love was absent. What does he teach in chapter 13? What he teaches in chapter 13 in context, if love was absent there, in chapter 13, he's, he's basically teaching what do you have when you don't have love? Nothing. It's useless. It's worthless. Whatever you're doing is in vain. So mention that at your next wedding. Well, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. They were loveless. You know? Well, these two aren't loveless. They love each other. Yeah, whatever. Okay, so this chapter is called the love chapter, right? I've heard that a million times, the love passage. And in this marvelous, chapter 13, marvelous passage of Scripture, the apostle undoubtedly, I mean, just read it, a cursory reading, a glanced reading. He says a great many important things about love. 
no doubt. And as I've already pointed to, this text is read in isolation all the time. It's read in isolation at weddings. It's read in isolation in churches. It's read in isolation sometimes when some pastor's doing an expository series on love. They just don't teach it in its context. It's done in isolation apart from its biblical, theological, and literary context. And I'm convinced that in order to fully appreciate the full weight of what Paul is saying, you must have the context. You have to know what's going on in chapter 12. You have to know what's going on in chapter 14. And you know what? You have to know what's going on in the whole totality of the letter, in the epistle. So, so 13, I think it has a standalone quality. That's why it's used at weddings and in other contexts. But to fully grasp its depth and beauty, you've got to understand the context. Bare minimum, you've got to know what the Corinthians were up to. And what have we learned so far? Selfish, misdirected. I mean, they're just... And by the way, they're a reflection of every church afterwards. It's not like they're uniquely stupid. <laughs> right? Uh, these people were something, let me tell you. You know, when you say that, you should be looking in a mirror. I'm something, let me tell me. These people, these people are not an anomaly. They're not strange and like, wow, they're just so out of place. They represent every church afterwards because every church has this problem of selfishness. It just manifests in different ways. But I, I do think that they were extraordinarily off track. It is interesting as we study it. But this particular letter, you, you've got to know what's going on with these people. You've got to know what's going on in 12 and in, and in 14, everything surrounding it. It's got to be read and studied in its immediate context. And in fact, uh, one commentator uh, totally agrees with me. Actually, I'm agreeing with him after reading his commentary. Uh, but he says, Paul's exposition of love in chapter 13 is particularly suited for the Corinthian context. When a brilliant theologian with more degrees than Fahrenheit says something like that, I think we should pay attention. Because what he's saying is you're not going to fully understand the gravity and meaning and depth without understanding the Corinthians. That's what he's saying, essentially. Everything, uh, what I've determined after just, you know, marinating and meditating on the whole chapter, because whenever you're going to teach through a chapter in the Bible, you really need to look, you can't just look at one section of it or one paragraph or one set of verses. You have to look at the whole thing. And as I was kind of taking a shotgun approach to the whole chapter, um, everything that I see written in chapter 13 really could be divided into five sections or five real main points. Yeah, he says an enormous, there's an enormous amount of information concerning love, but I think what he's trying to stress and emphasize is really just five things about love. He says everything about love in the chapter to make really five big main points. So you could take these five points and then have a paragraph under that. Everything is pushing toward that point. Then you move to the next one. All the verses are pushing toward that point. He's really just trying to illustrate five things, I think. And some pastors would probably say, I see six or seven, fine. But I see five, and that means we'll have a five-point sermon. <laughs> but we won't do all five points today because it's just, you know. 
So uh, we'll probably look at uh, maybe two today and then one, two, three in the coming week or whatever next Sunday, Lord willing. So turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll just camp out and park on verses 1 to 7 for today. And I think we should pray. I'm already getting all fired up here. Uh, Lord, help me to be, be fired up and to preach it as Carla said, but um, to, to do it in love. <laughs> could you imagine? Well, the Lord could imagine because he knows me really well. Um, yes, I could totally preach this text without one ounce of love in me and maybe just with law in my mind and heart. But I need to remember that this all applies to me firstly and that I was highly convicted uh, this week as I was studying. And I think I even mentioned to Rachel, uh, are you in kids this weekend coming up? Nope. Oh, well, you better get ready because uh, this is a challenging thing for us. And I know some have said, and I've seen this, Lord, I've seen it where they say, well, this is God's standard of love and um, we can't meet his standard of love. Therefore, he doesn't really expect us to, to meet it. And so that's just why we need the gospel. And um, uh, that's horse, that's horseradish, Lord. That, that, that's, that's false. If it's, it's, it's written here for our um, edification. Uh, these things are within our grasp. We, we don't have to go around as selfish people. We, we can um, uh, experience your love and, and embrace your love and, and express your love. And so this is not just for mere learning or some target that we can never hit. It, it is for us. And uh, Paul never intended for it to, just to be some kind of philosophical thing that sounds good. So uh, may we not come at it from that angle, even though some things here may seem impossible. Um, but Lord, we know that uh, through you all things are possible. And so help us to, to hear, to understand, to embrace, to repent, and to live it. And so we commit the time to you. Teach us about love. In Jesus' name, amen. First main point, we're picking up where we left off, and I'm just going to read the entire verses and then go back through it. Uh, the first main point, these are all S's because you know how I roll. Uh, the first thing that Paul teaches in the first portion here is the significance of love. The significance of love. Love is significant for several reasons. And we see this in verses 1 to 3. And this is how he begins it. And <laughs> by the way, you will notice very quickly that as he works through this section, as he teaches them on love, he is mentioning all the spiritual gifts at the same time that he's already identified in the previous chapter. <laughs> so, so how specified is this teaching? Oh, you want tongues and you're going to use it. Let me tell you how you have to apply love to that. This is exactly what he's doing, and this is why you have to have the context. And he begins with, he begins in verse 1 with what they perceive as the highest of all the gifts, the one that they're obsessed with, crazy, carnal, crazy over. Look at what he says. I'll just read right through verse 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Okay, I imagine, I don't know, one of those little monkey things banging the cymbals, right, with the little red hat. Just bad noise. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers, here's another gift, 
and I understand all mysteries, and I've got all this knowledge. And if I have all faith, faith that can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And he says in verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All right. Stop there. So, again, section, title, what? The significance of love. Are you already starting to picture the significance of it? There's gifts that he identifies, and when you do those gifts and perform those gifts, even in extreme ways, if you don't have love, what are those gifts worth? Goose egg. He begins by illustrating the significance of love in the operation of spiritual gifts and Christian service, which is what he's been talking about for several chapters. And he actually mentions five spiritual gifts and then describes what happens when they are not motivated nor performed in love. This is how simple this text is. But that doesn't really make much sense if we don't have chapter 12 and 11 in mind. Right? Because he's already talked about spiritual gifts and talked about the appropriate use of them and the employment of them. And he's talked about how, how diverse they are in the church among all the different diverse members. Keep in mind everything that we've learned. This is why it's essential to have the context. And firstly, in verse 1a, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So the first gift that he identifies is what I already said. It's the one that they were obsessed with. The ability to speak in unlearned languages supernaturally. Tongues. What did we learn about tongues in chapter 12? That's exactly it. And that it was given for judgment, the reversal of judgment, a sign gift. You remember everything. We now, I did talk about the tongues of angels in previous messages and talked about how he's using uh, he's using expansive lingo here it's it's like a hyperbole and some people take this to be literally that okay he's saying if i speak in the tongues of men we know that's human languages and if i were to speak in the tongues of angels now we're talking about angelic languages and so there are some people that believe there are literal angelic languages because of what paul says here now we've already covered this um We've also learned that in order for a tongue to, uh, as a spiritual gift to be legitimate, there must be translation. Like when, if God is going to give in a moment a supernatural utterance of a language that is unknown to a person, if he's going to do that supernaturally, right, through divine miracle, there's going to be somebody there that can receive it and interpret it and share the meaning with others because the whole point is to build up. When we see the operation of supernatural tongues in the New Testament, when we see it actually operating, there is someone there to say, or they, the people that are, that are hearing it, they just understand what's being said because this person's speaking in a language they don't know, but these people on this side know the language. Oh, he's talking about the, the, the works of God. So there's always interpretation. So you can't have one without the other. You have to have the supernatural human language being spoke through somebody who doesn't know that language, and then you've got the interpretation. Now when you stop and think about the tongues of angels, give me one example in the Bible where we have angels speaking tongues where there's some kind of interpretation and all that. There isn't one example of it. Further, 
illustrating the point. It's hyperbole. Could you imagine if some angel appeared and was speaking in some strange angelic language that is unfamiliar to us? And um, by the way, the angel doesn't know the language because it has to be supernatural. So all of a sudden he's just ripping off and speaking in a language he doesn't know. And then there's some human there to interpret. How would a human know a human language, uh, uh, angelic languages? Humans only know human languages. You'd have to have another angel there to interpret and then tell the human what's being said. Sounds pretty nuts, doesn't it? Give me an example in the Bible where we have it. Where do we see anything in the Bible where angels are speaking anything other than intelligible human languages? We even see angels speaking to one another in heaven and before God and the throne of God. And they're speaking, I mean, at least they're translated into, uh, into, into the original language then in English. So point being, there are human tongues but there aren't any specific angelic languages. We don't have any precedent or example of that anywhere in the Bible. So I, I think it's reckless to run crazy and say, based on this one small phrase here, that we've got an entire language system designed and used specifically by angels and no other example of it anywhere in the entire Bible. It's really a bad idea to build an entire theology on one hyperbolous verse when you don't have corroboration from other verses. So if I speak in the tongues of men, that's real. And the tongues of languages, that's hyperbole. The idea is that angels are higher than human beings. And so they possess a higher level of knowledge and a higher level of brilliance and a higher level of articulation and a, a higher ability to use language. They're just smarter than us. They're more powerful than us. And so Paul is using hyperbole. If I were to speak in human languages, oh, you all know what I'm talking about here. And what if I was to take it even beyond that and speak with the eloquence and clarity and precision of an angel? That's what he's saying. So that's verse 1a. Verse 2a. Nextly, he says, and if I have prophetic powers. This is, this is, he's expressing two types of prophetic power. One that existed then and doesn't anymore today and one that still exists. We already talked about this spiritual gift. At this juncture in church history, there were some people that possessed literal prophetic power where they would give the revelation of God through that prophetic power. That was one type of gift of prophecy, mainly used in the construction of this. It's done now, so the gift is gone. So the other type of prophecy that Paul is talking about, we learned about this already, is the prophecy of unfolding God's word with clarity and precision and with good application. When a minister preaches like that, they are preaching prophetically from God's word. That gift is ongoing. There's still a need for that. So he's talking about, hey, if I, have, if I could speak in the tongues of men and if I could speak at a higher level uh, as angels could speak with their brilliance and if I had the, the spiritual gifts of prophecy like to give revelation as like the apostles had or the gift to unfold God's word, prophetically unfold God's word with precision and clarity, uh, a Sinclair Ferguson, uh, Paul Washer, you know, kind of situation. Verse 2b, 
and I understand all mysteries and knowledge. Um, this is basically the spiritual gift of wisdom, maybe combined with the spiritual gift of knowledge, right? To be able to understand all mysteries, there's kind of the discernment spiritual gift there. There's the wisdom spiritual gift there. If I could understand all the things of God, if I had the kind, if God had given me the kind of gift that enabled me to understand things the way that he understands, all of the mysteries, nothing is mysterious to me any longer because of the way I've been gifted. If I had that kind of gift, that's what Paul's saying. I understand, if I understood the doctrine of election perfectly and exactly how predestination works and how the mercy of God works and how the grace of God works and how God is loving and just, and if I had the most thorough, thorough knowledge of all the mysteries, if I understood all the truths of God perfectly, that's what he's saying. Now, that would be a serious gift. And that's not something we will ever truly possess. But he's imagining here and using it in a hyperbolous way and then he also adds to the mysteries, because that mysteries is understanding all the things of God. And then he says, and all knowledge, that's understanding all the things of the world. Understanding um, every process for insects and for plants and just having all of this vast knowledge of how everything in nature and everything in the world works. That'd be some serious spiritual giftedness to, to have that kind of borderline God-like understanding of all things. That's what he's saying here. And God does grant the spiritual gift of wisdom and the spiritual gift of knowledge, but it doesn't go as far as Paul is saying, but Paul is using hyperbole, like if I just knew everything like God does, that's what he's saying. Verse 2c, and if I have all faith, that's the spiritual gift of faith, and here he's using hyperbole again, it's the kind of giftedness of faith that I could literally think to have Mount Diablo move six feet and it would do it. Like I moved Mount Everest with my faith out of Nepal or wherever it is, right to the middle of France. You had that kind of faith where you could literally move a mountain, that you could move heaven and earth, the most profound, most potent kind of faith ever known. You know, like the faith of Christ in his humanity. He was a believer in his divinity. He was essentially believing in himself because <laughs> he's God. I don't know. That's weird. It exceeds my pay grade. But just imagine if you had the gift of faith at this kind of level where not philosophically or theoretically that things could be moved through your thoughts through faith, but not thinking they could, but could be, could be, that level. That's what he's saying. And then verse 3a, again, these are all spiritual gifts, but it's the most extreme versions of them. If I give away all I have, what's he talking about now? He's talking about the spiritual gift of generosity. And look at the extreme example of generosity in the giftedness that he gives. If I give away all that I have, that literally means to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ. You know, to take up residency with Jesus where foxes have no holes and bir uh, you know, birds don't have, they, they all have their holes and nests to live in and I have no place to stay. Jesus was essentially homeless. This is you with the gift of generosity and such an extreme unction and measure that you are just willing to lay it all down for the gospel. You don't hang on to one worldly thing. You don't get rid of everything except your nice car. 
drive a Ford Explorer, it's the first thing you give away, right? If I give away all that I have, if, I, if I'm gifted in such an extreme way with generosity, I just give away all that I have. And then now he goes even further. It's not just what I have and possess for the cause. If I deliver up my body to be burned, I would give every, I am gifted with the gift of generosity or the gift of, of giving in such an extreme way. If I was gifted in such a way as to give away all I have, including my own life, to have my body burned, they, they didn't, I don't think that they burned, well, actually, no, they did. Now that I think about it, Paul is pulling from Nero because Nero was around at this time and he was turning Christians into human candles. What he's essentially saying is if I showed up at the Roman palace and said, I love Christ, go ahead and kill me. I'm willing to give up my body. I have the gift of giving to an extreme. I will give up myself to be killed for Christ. And then you're turned into a human candle in his garden, in Nero's garden. That's what he's saying. So he's not just speaking of spiritual gifts. He is giving what he perceives in his imagination as the highest expressions of these spiritual gifts. Not merely speaking in the tongues of men, but speaking in an angelic tongue, which is way above. Not merely just having the gift of prophecy, in both types, whether it's revelatory or just exposition, I, what he's saying is in the most extreme way, if I had the gift of knowledge and wisdom at the, at the most extreme levels, not just a rudimentary elementary base level, at the most extreme level, if I had the gift of faith at the highest possible level where I could think, I want this car that's driving in front of me 27 miles an hour to move, and then I move it, and nobody's hurt. That would be me. I've wished for the gift of faith many a times when I got behind someone that shouldn't be driving. If I had the gift of generosity and giving so much so that I was willing to give away everything, even my own body and life for the cause of Christ. Okay, so it's the spiritual gifts that he's already taught on, but these are extreme versions of them, right? The highest expression. So, now we get into the point. If these spiritual gifts, even in the, the highest and most extreme expression, like just beyond, even beyond reality, if these spiritual gifts, and I would say all the other spiritual gifts, because there's more than just the, you know, five or so that he mentions here. If these spiritual gifts that he mentions and all the other spiritual gifts, let's combine them and put them all together. The Spirit gives all of these gifts. If all of these gifts are given and not motivated or performed in love, what is the end result? Verse 1b, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And, and what is he talking about? He's talking about an audible gift, tongues. If I had the spiritual gift of tongues, even in the, most in the most extreme, exotic way, as to be able to speak with the eloquence and brilliance and clarity and precision of an angel, if I had that and practiced that and I did not have love in my heart and I wasn't speaking this truth, whether it be revelatory or whatever, in love, I am essentially 2000s era hip hop in heaven. Terrible music, worthless. 
I'm just banging a gong. I'm just clanging cymbals. And that right there is a direct citation of pagan Corinthian worship. Because when they worshiped their false deities, they banged on all, it was like the kids in the kitchen banging on pot Tupperware. They banged on instruments. There was no melody, no rhythm, no notes. It was just a bunch of loud noise, banging on gongs, banging on drums and clanging cymbals and just ecstatic speech and just this weird combination of absolutely useless music. It wasn't that these people would sing out of key. That's difficult to listen to. They just could not sing. And, and so he's saying that if I had the gift of tongues at that level and performed it without love in my heart, I'm just noise. Verse 2D, here's another result if, you know, let's say prophetic powers or knowledge or any of these other gifts, if I operate these gifts apart from love without love, he says in verse 2D, I am nothing. I am nothing. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just amazing. So firstly, he says, I'm a lot of noise. And now he says, if he expresses the, really the same spiritual gifts without love, he is nothing. He is literally nothing. And I think what he means there is that since God is love, that means God saves his people by his love and his people are to be loving. They are loved by God. They have been empowered to love, and when they don't have love in their hearts and don't express love, it's an identity crisis. You become nothing. In other words, you don't look anything like your heavenly father. That's what he's saying. I am nothing. My identity is gone. I look like the world, and the world is nothing. This is what he's saying. What else happens if you function? and operate and serve without love, no matter how talented and gifted you may be. What else, what, else, what else happens? Verse 3b, I gain nothing. There is nothing to be gained through loveless service. Don't expect a reward when you stand before the Lord because it has to be done in love or it's utterly useless. It's bad noise in the ears of Christ you are not bearing the image of God who is love when you're loveless. And there is nothing to be gained through loveless service. That's what he says. Are you now starting to comprehend and grasp the depth of what he's saying here in light of chapter 12 and the rest of the epistle to a bunch of loveless, selfish, pride-mongering Christians? Chapter 13 is not a passage on love. It is the ultimate rebuke because it exposes the Corinthians' lovelessness. It's devastating. It's destructive. If Paul, who is incredibly gifted by God, he's an apostle for crying out loud. They're, they're at the top of the food chain if there was such a thing. If he were to watch, and, and you don't even know this, by the way, Hey, you don't have any idea that he's been following you, and not in a weird stalker way. That's kind of a bad illustration for today because we have all that. But let's just say that somehow Paul is totally in tune with your life, knows who you are, sees what you're doing, follows you around without you knowing, and watches you for a whole year. You as a brother or sister Christian, 
how you live your life, what you do, the motions you go through, how you love your spouse if you're married, if not, how you love your friends, how you love your other churchmen and women, how, you know, whatever. He watches your life. And after one year of observing you, he sends you chapter 13. What would you do? I would probably finally move out of state and find a place to hide. It's the love passage, but think about the context. A love passage written to loveless people who name Christ, who belong to the God of love. Love is significant because without it, spiritual gifts and Christian service create nothing but noise in the ears of Christ and nothing but trouble in his body in the church. We see this in the Corinthian church. Loveless service in that we become nothing, which has to do with making our identity as God's children unrecognizable since God is love. 1 John 4, 16. When we do not have love in us, when we do not have love flowing through us, we are not like our heavenly father. 1 John 4, 8 literally says that. If you do not love, you're nothing like the one who saved you by his love and who loves you now with an immense, intense, eternal love. You're not like him. Jesus said all people, all people, anyone you come in contact with, whether it be while you're on vacation, whether it be at your workplace, whether it be in your neighborhood, wherever it is, all people who are exposed to you, what will they do? They will know that you are or are not my disciples by how you love one another. What is the defining mark of the Christian? Vast reformed theology, understanding some of these mysterious doctrines, being a 10-point Calvinist because five wasn't good enough. Being a great preacher, being a great musician, being a, a, a delightful singer, being the, the best tech you can be in the back, hitting the buttons with such precision. Watch this. Being the best hospitality person the best in the children's ministry, the best in the nursery, changing diapers with the Holy Spirit. Boom, look at this. That was a holy diaper change. Actually, I think parents are supposed to change them, so maybe the parents are anointed with that gift. What is the defining mark of the Christian? None of that. It's love. That's how you know. They will know if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. And of course he says we gain nothing, which means we receive no heavenly rewards for our service. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. If we do what we do without love, nothing is gained. Remember this. Lovelessness brings losses. But if the believer is motivated by love and they serve in love, their service will be delightful, highly enjoyable music in the ears of Christ. And they will bear his beautiful, loving image in a dark world. 
and their heavenly rewards shall be great. See, the opposite is true. It's a disaster without love, but it's glorious with love. There's the difference. So what is the significance of love? Everything hangs on it. Love makes everything beautiful and wonderful and approved and effective. And it brings the blessing of God and the rewards of heaven. Don't we want to make musical, beautiful music in our Lord's ears through our loving service? Or do we just want to keep sending up E40? Crap. So the significance of love, I would just say, let's boil it down to it's everything. It is significant because without it, nothing is, it doesn't matter what we do or who we are. It just makes no difference. Secondly, number two, the spirit of love. The spirit of love, verses 4 to 7. When I say spirit of love, I'm saying the disposition. I'm saying the attitude. I'm saying the behavior. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the spirit of it. When you talk about the spirit of a person, you're talking about how they are and how they operate and how they function and the joy or whatever it is that's about them. And now we're talking about the characteristics in a sense of love or the attitude of love. 4 to 7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Oh, my goodness. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Some people put a C there and call this the, the character of love, but it's, to me it's the spirit and the attitude, the behavior of love. Spirit of love refers to the disposition and attitude of love. In these four verses, Paul describes how love behaves and doesn't behave. Right? Love has a, a way about it, and there's other ways about it that claim to be love that aren't love. So this is how love behaves and does not behave. Think of it like that. That's the spirit of love. Firstly, verse 4a, love is patient and kind. <laughs> Some of you right now are thinking, I am the most impatient person in the world, right? I don't have anyone in particular in mind. You're probably thinking, oh, I, he's thinking about me. No, I'm not. It's the word that's probing you, not me. You know what impatience is? Lovelessness. Love is patient and kind. That's the attitude of love. That's the behavior of love. Love's patience is the ability to be, in, and keep in mind, there's specific application here, okay? It's not just, it's not totally universal. It's given to the Corinthians who had, they had the characteristics that weren't loving. <laughs> and so they, when he says love is patient and kind, since they're unloving, they weren't patient or kind. <laughs> so love's patience is the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again and yet not be upset or angry. That's love's patience. It enables the person to take it on the chin and keep dealing with difficult people and difficult scenarios and insults and everything else. When Paul is saying this through obviously the Greek language, and this is what he means, and this is how the Corinthians would have taken it, he's essentially saying that's not the kind of love that you 
exemplify or show. You don't show patience when, as soon as somebody uh, doesn't follow through with their end of the deal, you take them to court and sue them. Because we already learned that's what they do, right? They don't bear up anything. It is this love has this ability, unique quality about it that enables it to just go ahead and be inconvenienced with really no limit to that. I'll just keep taking it. It's not that love is a doormat that gets stomped all over. It's just that love is just going to be patient as people act stupid, <laughs> for lack of better words. Chrysostom wrote, it is a word which is used of the man who is wronged and who has it uh, easily in his power to avenge himself, but just will never do it. That's the meaning. The believer who has love in their heart will patiently endure persecution, patiently endure suffering, and they will put those matters in the hands of the Lord, who is the avenger, who is the just one. See, the person who has love, and usually the people who are most loving are the most mistreated because people see them as weak and want to take advantage of them. And they're fine with that. Go ahead. Heap on the abuse. Whatever. I know God is just. I know he'll take care of me. I know what his view of me is. I know how he values me. You don't, and that's okay. He does. And this is the attitude of the Christian who has love in their heart. They won't avenge themselves. They won't retaliate. I mean, who, who embodied this better than anyone else? Christ. Completely innocent, never sinned, never did a thing wrong, and has all these false charges thrown at him, and yet it says in the scripture that he remained silent as a lamb led to the slaughter. He could have called down legions and just, I don't know, 100,000 angels could have wiped out everyone in the garden, but he didn't. He said he could, but he didn't. That's how the person, the Christian with love is. They know there's things they could do and they just choose not to do them because they want to remain loving because you start to leave love when you, want to, when you aim to retaliate and do things. Now you're acting like the world which does not know love at all. Love's kindness means to be useful and serving and to be gracious. It is active goodwill. It not only feels within itself generous, it is generous. That's love's kindness. It not only desires others' welfare, but it works toward that. For the Corinthians, kindness meant giving up their selfish, jealous, spiteful, and proud attitudes and adopting the spirit of loving kindness. Among other things, it would allow their spiritual gifts to be truly and effectively ministered in the spirit rather than superficially and unproductively counterfeited in their flesh. So love is patient and kind. Verse 4b, love does not envy or boast. <laughs> love and envy are mutually exclusive, by the way. Where one is, the other cannot be. Right? You, you can't have love in you and envy at the same time. <laughs> You're one or the other. What did Shakespeare call envy? The green sickness. 
And this is where the phrase green with envy comes from. Shakespeare made quite a contribution there, didn't he? Jesus referred to envy as an evil eye. Matthew 20, verse 15. MacArthur writes, one of the hardest battles a Christian must fight is against envy and jealousy. They're really the same thing. There is always someone who is a little better or who is potentially a little better than we are. We all face the temptation to envy when someone else does something better than we do. It's a very practical way to describe this terrible syndrome of jealousy and envy. It's the opposite of love. It's like we love what they are and what they can do, but we hate them for it. And we wish we could do and had what they have. Green with envy. The believer who has love in their heart will not envy who others are, what they have, or what they do. They will be happy and content with God's provision and calling on their life. And they will rejoice when their brothers and sisters excel. Paul talked about that in the previous chapter. Love is not a braggadocious, it's not a boaster. Doesn't boast, and the person who has love in their heart doesn't boast about who they are or what they're doing or what they can do. You know, they're not always saying, Hey, look here. That's not love, it's pride. Love is not a boaster, does not parade its accomplishments before others. C.S. Lewis called bragging the utmost evil. Uh, J. Mack called, called it the epitome of pride. What is pride, actually? It's the root of all sin. Boasting is pride on display. It's not love. It puts ourselves first. Everyone else, including God, must therefore be of less importance to us. That's the heart of the boaster. And yet the believer who has love in their heart will not be boastful. In fact, if they decide to boast at all, it'll be in the cross of Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14, that's their only boast. They'll boast about what they're doing or what they can do or what they've done or what they're going to do. That's not love. Love the behavior of love is, is, yes, those temptations will arise, but love in us will drive those things away and say that is not loving, that is not becoming of you as a child of God, as a child of love, literally, and you put those things aside. And if you choose to boast, it'll be boasting in the cross and what that has accomplished for you and for others. That's the heart and attitude of love. Verses 4C to 5A, love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogance is just another word for pride. It is a puffed up view of oneself. Envy and boasting, which are two that we've already covered, they result from arrogance and pride. We know that. They are expressions of pride. They are expressions of arrogance. The Corinthian church was arrogant. That's why Paul is saying this. This isn't a standalone text. 
I just think I'll talk about love now for the heck of it. He's addressing every anomaly, every sin in this church. They were arrogant in the worst ways. Paul put them on blast for this in previous chapters, right? In the previous chapter in particular. Well, back in uh, chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, he says this of this church, some are arrogant, as though I were not going to come to you and deal with you. You're so prideful and so arrogant, you don't think I'll actually show up to discipline you. And he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power. That's what he said in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He's already called them out for their arrogance. He's already called them out for their pride. Now he's telling them exactly what it produces or what it results in or what it is. It's the opposite of love. J. Mack again, arrogance breeds contention with which the Corinthian church was filled in such things, love has no part. Listen to this. This is really good. I'll say it slow so you can write it down. I think this is a phenomenal quote. Arrogance is big-headed. Love is big-hearted. That's gold. The believer who has love in their heart will be the opposite of arrogant. What is the opposite of pride and arrogance? Humility. Love breeds humility. The behavior of love is humility. Yes, he or she will be humble and they will be meek. And meek does not mean weak. It means strength under control. And let's not forget what the meek, the humble and meek, those with love that produces a meekness and, 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 and that through them, let's not forget what they inherit. What do the meek inherit? All of this. What does he mean when he says the earth? He's not talking about this jacked up sinful world. He's talking about the world to come, the kingdom of Christ, which is this entire world. That's their inheritance. Prideful don't get it. God opposes the proud. Matthew 5, 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. Rudeness has to do with having no manners. That's what he's talking about. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love is not arrogant. It's not prideful and puffed up. It's the opposite of that. Love is not rude. Love has manners. Boy, do we not see that today. I, I myself am guilty of this at times. I remember uh, many, many years ago when I first became a Christian, you know, and uh, whether I'd be at work or somewhere else doing something and you know, if, 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 if you let people know, they would, they would try to have a little bit of manners around you and watch their tongue and, you know, and, oh, there's a Christian here. I mean, even when I became a pastor later, you know, that was kind of early on in my pastorate. That's kind of how it was around common, normal people. But today, they don't care at all. They find out you're a Christian, they cuss more. They find out you're a pastor, they tell you all kinds of dumb things, locker room jokes, and you're like, just told you I'm a pastor. They don't care. They're rude. People today are disgustingly rude. What is rudeness? Lovelessness. Love is not rude. Love cares about what others think and about how others feel. Rudeness does not. Rudeness has to do with having no manners, not caring about what others 
think or feel, you know, acting unbecomingly or impolitely, that's the opposite of love. A rude person cares nothing for the feelings and sensitivities of others. They are careless. They are overbearing. They are often crude. And the Corinthians were models of rude behavior. During communion, what did they do? They gorged themselves and got drunk in front of their destitute brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one, as Lily would say, rude. It's her favorite word for me because I always make fun of things and her music, I call it banana music, and she's like, rude! But that's the Corinthians during communion. You gobble up all the stuff and drink all the wine and nobody else, that's rude. That's not love. Love says, you go first. If there's anything left for me, I'm down. But if not, you're covered. That's love! Love just, come on, love is Pac-Man. Eating it all up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one is where they did that. But the believer who has love in their heart will be thoughtful, not rude. He or she will try to avoid being offensive and stay away from causing stumbling blocks, especially to weaker brothers and sisters, which the Corinthians were masters of. I mean, they threw out so many speed bumps in front of the newer Christians. Here, by the way, step over this freaking chair. I mean, they were a disaster. They were horrible. They didn't, they weren't, Loving, they were rude, and they did not prevent stumbling blocks. They created them, and then when called out on it, they said, so be it. It's my liberty. That's not love. This chair's going, you're not very loving. Loving the brother, sister who has love in their heart, they're going to be considerate. That's what Paul is saying. And the Corinthians were not considerate of others, only themselves. Verse 5b, love does not insist on its own way. Uh, this is, it's just selfishness is what this is. That's what he's saying. Insisting on your own way is selfishness. Being strong-willed. You've heard that phrase used, right? Oh, well, he's just very strong-willed. Oh, so you're saying he's unloving. No, he's not unloving. Yeah, he is. That's what it means to be strong-willed. It means to be self-absorbed and demanding your own way. That's the opposite of love. It's selfishness. And I think selfishness is probably the key to everything here. Selfish pride, self, selfishness driven by pride is, is the main issue here in this church, in, in the church at Corinth. They're just a bunch of selfish people. The root of, or the root evil of fallen humanity or fallen human nature is in wanting to have its own way. Wouldn't you agree? Isn't that what people want today? It's, that's just the root. It's pride and why everyone wants their own way. You even see it with Adam and Eve. Robert Lenski was a Lutheran theologian during the mid-18th and early 19th centuries. That's when he was about, and he wasn't a huge fan of reformers or reformed theology, and I tend to align with those guys because I, I think what they're saying matches better up with the Bible, but he did have some cool things to say, and one thing that he said was, if you were to cure selfishness, you've basically just replanted the Garden of Eden. It's the root, selfishness. It's the root of everything. It's at least the root of all the evils in the Corinthian church. The Corinthians 
were models of selfishness. Like they were like, okay, all right, Fred, what's the goal? Selfishness. All right, write it on the board. Everyone, go after this. It's not love. Examples of their mind-boggling self-seekingness, uh, selfishness and self-seeking attitude, their lovelessness. They wanted spiritual gifts for themselves, not for the benefit of the church, for themselves. And then they tried to use them for their own advantage. That's all of chapter 12. Talk about self-seeking. Talk about demanding what you want. Another example, we kind of pointed to this a minute ago. They did not share their food at communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21. Demanding their own way. I want my food. I don't care if anyone gets anything. I don't care if he's hungry. They also insisted upon their Christian liberties and ate food sacrificed to idols, thus causing many weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. Chapter 8, verses 9 to 10. I want my food and I want my way and I don't care if it costs somebody their spiritual life. That's the attitude, not love. They even protected their legal rights under the Greco-Roman system to the point of suing fellow believers in pagan courts. 1 Corinthians 6.1 Talk about the goal of self-satisfaction and selfishness and self-seeking, that's the target, everyone. Let's go after it. I mean, that's about as low as you can go. It's just that you've got an issue with a brother or sister in the church and you sue them in a pagan court. You take them down. After, after Dustin is finished with that beautiful building over there, you just walk them over there and sue the snot out of them. Talk about self-seeking. What would love do in that scenario? Absorb the loss. The believer who has love in their heart will not be selfish nor insist upon his or her own way, especially when their own way is actually wrong. Because that happens. You can sit there and give them counsel and give them the scripture and say, you're wrong. No, I'm not. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I got to be loving. Okay. You're not going to insist upon your own way, especially when it's wrong. The sister or brother who has love in their heart, they're, they're not going to, uh, they, they actually, what they will do is they, they will step aside when others just strong-willed people, Christians like that, just you know, they're, they're the controlling types that just demand to lead. They just want to take charge. I remember one time I could have went to war with a, with a brother and sister over the types of, 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 of sandwiches we would bring to an event. I chose love. Go ahead and I made a suggestion. This is, this is, this is a great place. It's reasonable. The food's delicious. You know, it, it's great. Let, let's, let's do that, you know. And, but I know you got to go over here. And you know, I'm like... Go ahead, sandwich lady. It just happened not too long ago. I'm just like, usually that's not what I do. I throw the sandwich at them. Right? 
find out what kind of impact Jimmy John's makes right on their forehead, right? Put a dent in her forehead. No, I just, it just, that, 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 this, I, I, too many brothers and sisters that are like this, and I, I think that I can be like this at times too. I mean, I think we all can, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a dumb sandwich. Come on, man. I'm leaving the church. They wouldn't get Subway. It's like, you shouldn't even be eating that. It's not even real tuna. Plastic! I'm loving you by telling you it's plastic. And I won't mention what happened to Jared. Not Jared here. Jared the Subway guy. Mm-hmm. The believer who has love in their heart, they're not going to insist on their own way or any of these sorts of things. They'll step, out, they'll step aside to let others who demand to lead, lead. Even if they crash and burn, they'll, they'll let them do that. They'll, they'll know that they need to learn, and sometimes the best way to learn is to crash and burn. They'll share what they have. They'll tend to the needs of others. That's what the loving Christian does. And this will be the legacy that they will leave behind, by the way. The legacy of a selfish person, however, is going to be vastly different. <laughs> like, like what the two people would have written on their tombstone. One's going to be great if you're loving, right? The other one, if you're not, is <laughs> not too good. Uh, there's an inscription on a tombstone in an old English village. And it kind of reminds me of, of Charles Dickens. You know, he did all the books and later we had movies and just it's just good stuff the Scrooge you know really sticks out right and, and this is what it says here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared nothing but gathering wealth now where is he it says now where is he or where he is and how he fares okay hold on a second let me try this again this is hard the English they always you know <sighs> mellow here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared nothing but gathering wealth now where he is or how he fares nobody knows and nobody cares I don't think that he paid to have that put on his tombstone. It's probably his wife. See ya. <laughs> Time to move on. Jethro's gone. Jethro Tull. But the, the person who has love is going to leave a vastly different impact on people and legacy. The one who is a miser and selfish and like these Corinthians were before this correction, it's a disaster. Verse 5c Love is not irritable or resentful. <laughs> oh, man. I was just, when I read that, I was like, how many times I get irritated over the dumbest things, you know? And, oh, God's like, you're not loving. I'm like, yeah, I am. Somehow, no, you're not. Yeah, no, I'm not. Love is not irritable or resentful. Resentful. Goodness. This line is connected to the previous line, obviously. The Greek word for irritable is... Perozuno, which is sometimes translated provoked to anger. So that's what irritable means in the Greek, to be provoked to anger. The Greek word for resentful is logizomai, logizomai, which is sometimes translated to count against. 
Here is the connection with the previous line. What happens when a selfish, unloving person, self-seeking person does not get his or her own way? What happens? What happens? How many parents do we have in here who had to take their kid out of Target and give them a whooping at the car because you wouldn't give them the Barbie because of the new movie? I don't know. It's coming up with stuff here. What happens when this selfish, self-saturated, unloving person, because you can't have love and selfishness in the same body, what happens when this person doesn't give their way? They become irritable, provoked to anger. And they can become, and often do become, resentful, holding a grudge. Hmm? Let's see. Tuesday, September 6th, he did this. This is what wives like to do. I'll make sure I use this later when he wants something. Remember on September 6th, 1974? Hold on a second. Let me get out the scroll. You did this. Right. We used to have that <coughs> problem. <coughs> she burned her Rolodex. She doesn't do that anymore. I love it. I can get away with a lot now. Right? Oh, man, she would just be like, Pfft. Yeah, like I could see her mentally recording when I did something stupid, which is like every 16 minutes. So, so the person that does not get their way, that self-seeking person that doesn't get their way, they get irritated, they get resentful, they can become resentful, but the, that's, they don't have love. But when a believer has love in their heart, he or she is not concerned about getting their own way. Therefore, there is no reason for them to become irritable or resentful. If you don't care, if you're just like, I, I'm just a loving person, then it's fine. You can do what you want. You're not getting blown out over these things. That's the idea. Love is there. Remember, since love is what? Firstly, patient and kind, that means it cannot be insistent, irritable, or resentful. Right? Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Look, love is pure. Love is holy. Because of its source, its source is pure and holy, right? God, God is love and God gives love. Love hates sin because it comes from God who hates sin. You know, today they've got these worldly carnal versions of love that love sin and embrace sin and perpetuate sin. That's not love, that's a cheap, that's not even a good imitation. No, love is holy. Love hates sin. It never rejoices in wrongdoing. Love does not take satisfaction from sin, whether it's its own sin or the sin of others. It's never satisfied or takes any kind of satisfaction or glories in or, or revels in or enjoys sin. Love just can't do it. It's, it's pure and it's holy because it comes from a pure and holy God. It will not rejoice at wrongdoing, because this would be to justify unrighteousness, which is something else love will never do. Love is never unrighteous. Love rejoices with the truth, not merely because it agrees with the truth, but because it is the truth itself. It is the highest truth. Does the Bible not teach us and define what love is for us? Love is not just a reality, not just something we enjoy. It is a truth. It is the highest of all truths because it comes from God.
Bible describes and defines what love is, therefore it is truth, just as the doctrine of election is truth, or the gospel is truth, or whatever truths we see in Scripture. Love is an attribute of God, really it's the essence of who He is, but it is an attribute in a sense, and it is a communicable attribute, which means God communicates or gives it to His people. Regeneration along with the imputation of this divine love is what makes uh, believers not just spiritually alive, but capable of enjoying, expressing, embracing, showing agape love, the love of God. The believer who has love in their heart will not rejoice when they see wrongdoing. They will not rejoice when they see unrighteousness. They will not laugh when, during movies when they blaspheme God and engage in things. It's not something that's enjoyable or entertaining to them. They hate it. It will grieve them because it grieves God. It will not slam others for sinning because that would be unloving. They will speak the truth in love when opportunities arise, Ephesians 4.15. They rejoice with the truth because they love the truth, especially the cardinal and highest truth, which is love itself. And they will rejoice with their brothers and sisters because they love their brothers and sisters. There was an old Scottish minister who was known for his love. That's the legacy that he left behind. Of course, he was a Scottish minister, probably a presby, probably sound in everything but baby baptism, but for the most part, solid guy and just known for loving people. And he expressed that love, not because he would just tell them all the time, I love you, I love you, I love you. He showed it. He showed it through patience and kindness and, and the attributes and character qualities and the behaviors of love that we see in the text here. He was known for this. And, and when he passed away, one of his congregates, congregates said this, there is no one left to appreciate the triumphs of ordinary folk because that's something else love does. It appreciates the little guy, the ordinary guy. And those who triumph even in the smallest of things that seem insignificant to us. That's what love does. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul is totally using hyperbole to make a point here. He has already stated that love rejects envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, selfishness, irritation, resentfulness, wrongdoing, all these things. So he could not have meant that love, in a literal sense, bears all things. He's using hyperbole. He already used it earlier when he talked about the, the highest potential or imaginary expressions of some of these gifts. Since love comes from God... It cannot bear things that are sinful, evil, wicked, deceptive, untrue, and so on. It bears all things. What Paul means is that love bears all things that are righteous and in accord with the will of God as revealed in Scripture. That's what love will bear. It'll bear the truth. It'll rejoice in the truth. The believer who has love in their heart will... Bear the things of God joyfully and even bear the burdens of fellow believers and thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is also called the law of love. Did you know that? Galatians 6, 2, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Love bears all good and righteous things and it will bear up under certain things, but it never gives approval to wicked stuff. 
When it comes to love believing all things, love is not some ignorant teenage gullible kid that literally believes everything. Love's not a dummy. Paul meant that love believes all things that are truthful according to scripture. It believes all things that are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Philippians 4.8. The believer who has love in their heart will believe and love what love believes and loves. They will be like love. Paul says love hopes all things. Well, love is certainly hopeful, but it cannot literally hope in everything. There are some things that you just can't put your hope in. Love puts no stock or hope in the world or in the things of this world. It hopes in God. It hopes in the promises of God. It hopes in the return of Christ. Love hopes for things unseen, 2 Corinthians 4.18. Yet those things that are unseen are revealed in Scripture, Romans 15, 4. That's what love hopes in. The absence of hope makes the heart sick, Proverbs 13, 12. But the believer who has love in their heart will be hopeful in the things of God. And they will even hope for others because they know God is merciful and that nothing is impossible for God. Exodus 33, 19, Romans 9, 15, Matthew 19, 26, and of course, Luke 1, 37. Lastly, Paul says love endures all things. This is the only behavioral trait or quality or characteristic listed in verse 7 that is not hyperbolous and is entirely true. The other ones are hyperbolous. They're expansions. Because we know that love will not bear evil and all these other things. This is the one, only one of the four here that is absolutely 100% true at all times. You must understand that love is eternal. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. In the very next verse, it gets its eternality from its source, God. What is God? Eternal. Since nothing can destroy the eternal, all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-present, everything that you want to attribute to God that is beautiful and glorious according to Scripture, since nothing can destroy this powerful, all-powerful, awesome, holy, pure, loving God, since love comes from Him and nothing can destroy Him, nothing can destroy love. Nothing. For something to be eternal, it must be infinitely strong, literally built to last forever and ever. Since love is eternal, it can literally endure all things. Just as Paul said, nothing can destroy it. Nothing can separate the believer from love which comes from God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 to 39. Love will endure the devil, it will endure the demons, it will endure uh, wickedness, evil, persecution, pain, insults, suffering, illness, loss, stumbling, betrayal, the flesh, the world, even physical death. Love will endure that. Because to be absent from the body is to be where? 
in the loving presence of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8. Guess what death is? Death is a chauffeur for love. It takes us right to the one who loves us. Death serves the cause of love. Love can never be destroyed, not even by death. And I would say that is for believers. If the entire universe was hurled at light speed at love, upon impact it would crumble and fall at love's feet. Love is by far the greatest of all, which is exactly what Paul says at the end of this chapter. Faith remains, hope remains, good things, but love is the greatest. The believer who has love in their heart can endure all things. When slapped, love is not defeated, turns the other cheek. Matthew 5.39, when reviled, love is not destroyed, it blesses. 1 Corinthians 4.12b, uh, when, when injured, love is not diminished, it is patient. 1 Corinthians 4.12c in the Living Bible. When slandered, love is not debilitated, it entreats. 1 Corinthians 4.13a. Point being, love endures all things, even the most difficult people. If we have love in our hearts, we will not only endure all things, but we will be ready, willing, and able to endure all things, all the things that happen in our families, all the things that happen in our friendships, all the things that happen in our church fellowship, the good, the bad, and especially the ugly. Love, another way to put it, as love endures, love stays put, and it will bear what is otherwise unbearable. In other words, love never stops loving. Never. And this this, my friends, this, my family, this is how God loves us in Christ. What you are seeing in Paul's exposition of love and all the good qualities of love and all the beauty of love, it is the love of God that he is putting on display that should be in our hearts. This is the love that God has for us in Christ, an enduring, never-ending love. Jeremiah 31.3, it calls the love of God everlasting, never-ending. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is not only the love that God has saved us by and, and has for us in Christ. It is the love God has poured into us through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. And it is, of course, the same love God commands us to show to others, especially to the household of faith. Mark 12, 31, Galatians 6, 10. I think this is a good place for us to stop.